As Eleanor and Marianne were walking together the next morning, the latter communicated a piece of news to her sister, which, in spite of all that she knew before of Marianne's imprudence and want of thought, I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. This week, we're looking at chapters 12 to 15 of Sense and Sensibility. As we did with one of the Pride and Prejudice episodes, we're joined by my partner, Michael, who'll be talking about the military, especially in relation to the East Indies. Hello. Harriet, do you have a hundred-word summary of the chapters? Eleanor convinces Marianne not to accept Willoughby's gift of a horse. Marianne gives Willoughby a lock of her hair, and Margaret tells Mrs Jennings about the man whose name begins with an F. An excursion to Whitwell is cancelled at the last minute when Brandon is urgently called away to London, and Mrs Jennings tells Eleanor that he has a natural daughter. Willoughby takes Marianne to see Allenham, which shocks Eleanor. Then, a week later, Willoughby also returns to London. Eleanor presses Mrs Dashwood to ask Marianne if she and Willoughby are engaged, but Mrs Dashwood refuses. So, that's my summary. Mine sort of tells a bit less about some bits and a bit more about others. Yep. Willoughby and Marianne continue their public displays of affection, but give no hint of an engagement, which worries Eleanor, though not Mrs Dashwood. Colonel Brandon is suddenly called to London, Perhaps Mrs Jennings speculates on behalf of his natural daughter. Willoughby then announces that Mrs Smith has told him to end his visit, but will give no assurance of when he will return. Marianne suffers from a violent oppression of spirits without any power because she was without any desire of command over herself. Yes, I think you've picked up more on the thematic elements. I've just done a plot summary. Yeah, well. <laughs> one of the things that struck me in Chapter 12 is this is one of the few times that Margaret actually contributes to the plot. She does two things in this chapter. She's the one who saw Marianne letting Willoughby take a lock of hair from her. And then she's also the one who tells Mrs Jennings there is such a man and his name begins with an F. Though the one thing I was left with is she leaves the, the F for Ferris a long while. I mean, she's been there a week or two and still she hasn't said it to Mrs Jennings. It'll be several weeks by then because yes. they've already met Willoughby. So, yeah, it's weeks and weeks into their time at Barton. Yes. I was thinking about it. I think the other thing that Margaret is useful for is she gives a good reason for the girls to go up to London, leaving their mother behind. Yeah. If there wasn't Margaret, we've got to stay with Mother. Yes. And with Margaret there, no way Mrs Dashwood could go up too. Mm. That basically means, though, chapters 1 to 11, there's been really no purpose to her being in the book. Briefly in chapter 12, <laughs> and then not again until they need to go to London. Yes. I was listening to the commentary on the 1995 film version, Emma Thompson's commentary, she said that they used Margaret to blurt out things everybody else is thinking, (laughs) as well as being useful as giving Edward and also Colonel Brandon someone to interact with. Yes. The first point I'd put down to think about, though, was that I think we discussed last time that what's happening in Sense and Sensibility is this debate of Marianne and Ella's about sense and sensibility has gone back quite a long way, but it's been a theoretical debate. But now we really are seeing it come into practice, at least with Marianne. And Eleanor is getting more and more disturbed at the extent to which Marianne isn't doing it. I think in this chapter she explains to Colonel Brandon and she says there are inconveniences attending such feelings as Marianne's, which all the charms of enthusiasm and ignorance of the world cannot atone for. Her systems have all the unfortunate tendency of setting propriety at naught and a better acquaintance with the world is what I look forward to as her greatest possible advantage. But in a sense, that debate, which was just a theoretical one, is suddenly actually turning out to be for real. Although it's not being framed exactly as a sense versus sensibility debate, it's all being framed around propriety, which is a word that does come up several times. And I actually looked up, there was a book written in the 1970s. Yes. It was by Jane Narden, and it was called Those Elegant Decorums. And in that she says... A character's social behaviour, in other words, the standard of propriety by which he lives, is for Jane Austen the external manifestation of his internal moral and psychological condition. And I think what we're seeing here is 
Eleanor is not necessarily concerned about Marianne's sensibility. She's quite capable of just laughingly cutting Marianne down when she's being overly sensitive. But what she's very concerned about in these sections is that Marianne and Willoughby's flouting of the rules of propriety has really gone up a notch. And also that goodness knows what is going to be the outcome. Yeah. Is the other thing. Is it going to cause damage? It's obviously propriety that she means, but she couldn't find something starting with S (laughs) (laughs) to demonstrate that, so she calls it sense. Perhaps you could say it's a sense of propriety. (laughs) (laughs) It is notable that, first of all, you've got the gift of the horse, which Eleanor has two big concerns with. One of them is just the expense, which Marianne just casually dismisses. Yes. Getting another servant won't cost very much and they, they don't can, need to have... Well, and, the, and they can sponge on Sir John. Yeah. <laughs> but the other thing is the concern with propriety that she doesn't know really and, and, well and enough. What it were, and what it might be saying that isn't in fact true. Yeah. There's one point, though, in a sense where Marianne comes back at her and says that I didn't feel I was doing wrong. That's the visit to Alanum, and that's where they actually start genuinely linking the concept of propriety with the concept of morality. Eleanor is concerned because Marianne and Willoughby have gone there. Mrs Smith was resident in the house, so they must have just snuck around her. Marianne had not been introduced to Mrs Smith at all. So as far as Eleanor's concerned, this is probably the worst breach they've done to date of the rules of decorum. But I, I think there's that other thing that Eleanor finds really shocking is they're talking about the house as though Mrs Smith's going to be gone. Here's this lovely room. It's awful at the moment, mm. but spend £100 on it and it'll be one of the nicest <laughs> mm. rooms. They're making these these assumptions, not just of marriage, but of inheriting from mm. Mrs Smith, mm. which, I mean, really is going a bit far. Mm. It's a rather a bit John and Fanny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the way they're going about it. Mm. But then Eleanor says, I am afraid that the pleasantness of an employment does not always evince its propriety. And Marianne immediately contradicts her and says, nothing can be a stronger proof of it, Eleanor, for if there had been any real impropriety in what I did, I should have been sensible of it at the time. For we always know when we are acting wrong, and with such a conviction I could have had no pleasure. So we're still, it's made quite clear that Marianne still is very moral. But she believes morality comes from inside you, from your conscience. Yeah. And that again, it can be left to feelings. If it's wrong, I'll feel it. Yeah. If I don't feel it, it can't be wrong. Yes. What this kind of says is that Eleanor uses propriety to cover all of the small social rules that you follow because you're part of society. Yes. And Marianne discounts all of them and really says propriety is only the ones that are important Yes. to not be breached. Yes. Oh, I think she says the ones that are important are the ones that cause me to be emotionally offended and <laughs> otherwise I ignore them. Well, that's what Jane Austen knows. Mm. It's not what Marianne believes in mm. But, of course, after the discussion, Marianne does eventually acknowledge, perhaps, Eleanor, it was rather ill-judged in me to go to Alanham. But then after saying that, she that's when she starts going on about the room upstairs. And if Eleanor would have let her talk longer, she would have described every single room in the house. Yes. <laughs> I've got one last point yep. to make on this one. And that is the beginnings of the Colonel Brandon Willoughby plot that is to unfold. And I'm sort of really feeling this isn't all that usual in a Jane Austen novel. There's definitely another version of this in Emma, but I can't think of any of the others where there's any real mystery. Mm. You might say there was a little bit in the Darcy Wickham, but somehow... Nothing is really to be revealed. When you know there's something the matter with Wickham, you pretty well hear what. Yeah. That's actually something that in the commentary to the 1995 film version, Emma Thompson and the producer, the reason the producer saw that one as the most cinematic Jane Austen was because of all these subplots and mysteries and unfolding points. Yes. It's very much not... Typical Austen no. to have a mystery subplot, mm. but she does it again in Emma. Yeah. And this one really has three mystery subplots, although two of them are intertwined. Because what? you've 
briefly got the Edward Lucy one until oh, Lucy turns right. up and reveals why Edward is behaving so strangely. Yes. That doesn't last very long. No. That only lasts a chapter yes. or so. Then you've got Colonel Brandon's abrupt departure. Yes. And the hints of Miss Williams. And then you've got Willoughby's abrupt departure, although it ultimately turns out that they're connected. Yes. It's a bit of the oddity of Sense and Sensibility that it's got this subplot, isn't mm. it? Yeah. It seems to me, though, that, that this is the novel where Jane Austen most overtly plays with, not quite satirises, but plays with conventions from the Romantic and Gothic traditions, that, that she brings in these elements that would be perfectly appropriate to a Gothic novel, to a, to a high Romantic novel, that there's something written by the Brontes, then looks at them through the Jane Austen what would this actually mean in the real world? Well, she does that very overtly in Northanger Abbey. Yes. Yes. I don't think it's, we can say, looking forward to what the Brontes did. I think it's looking back to what Richardson, Clarissa and Pamela, where there were girls who were being, you know, who were defending their honour and being abducted and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, all, all of them Castle of the Tranto or... No, no, or, I'm not thinking Castle of Tranto. I'm thinking of the sort of fairly serious ones. What I think she is referring back to is Richardson because she was a great lover of Richardson or a great admirer of Richardson anyway. And from what I know, never having read them, about <laughs> pa- Pamela and Clarissa, they all are about girls trying to defend their honour and men taking advantage of girls and that sort of thing. Mm. So I tend to say that that little subplot is harking back to the 18th century novel. Mm. One thing that I noticed in this rereading that I'd missed before is there's actually this little tiny weeny subplot about Colonel Brandon's brother-in-law. It's only two sentences, but you could build up a whole story about it. Because we know that they're going to Whitwell, which is the property of his brother-in-law, who is abroad and has left strict instructions that it can only be visited by Colonel Brandon. But then later on, a page or two later on, when Colonel Brandon gets the message, and Mrs Jennings says, was it from Avignon? I hope it is not to say that your sister is worse. I'm assuming, therefore, that the situation is... Colonel Brandon has a sister who is abroad in Avignon because she is sick and her husband is the person who owns Whitwell, which is why he is abroad at the moment as well. And that, that of course, would give another reason for why Colonel Brandon is so friendly with the Middletons, that he's got that second connection with that neighbourhood. Mm. For me, there's the more important question of how on earth is she in Avignon in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars? If this is set in 1813, but if in fact... Well, 1811 is when it was published. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, so it's not all that far on. I think it more likely that we are to assume that, that it's set in 1802 in yes. that brief piece after the Treaty of Amiens rather than her moving psychically forward to the end of a war that had been by this stage going for the best part of 40 years. Of course, they had that cousin who later became her sister-in-law, Yeah, who was married to, I think that was the problem, that he went back to France, I think, because he was guillotined, so it would have been earlier. She certainly knew about whether it was easy or not to get back to France. Just two other points I had to make. One is that I commented last time that I felt that Willoughby was bringing out Marianne's worst side in that some of what he was saying, particularly about Colonel Brandon, is a bit ill-natured. And I think we get an even more extreme example of it here, which is that after Colonel Brandon leaves, Willoughby says, there are some people who cannot bear a party of pleasure. Brandon is one of them. He was afraid of catching cold, I dare say, and invented this trick for getting out of it. I would lay 50 guineas the letter was of his own writing. And Marianne says, I have no doubt of it. Yes, that does make that point very yeah, and, well. Yeah, I think it's just, it is becoming quite mean-spirited. Do you think that nasty tone is definitely intended by, I think it's truly there, giving you sort of little hints of why you shouldn't trust Willoughby? He's maybe not quite as nice a person as, as he seems. Yes. Yeah. He never gives up on thinking Brandon is horrible. Mm. But perhaps he's already aware that he has injured Colonel Brandon. Does he know that young Eliza is Brandon's ward? He probably doesn't know at this point. 
Because he probably wouldn't have seduced her if he knew she was Brandon's ward, because there are some things you don't do. Yeah, or also that what the comeback might be. Yes. yes. And the only other point I wanted to make, I'd have to credit this to talking of Jane Austen, where Mrs Jennings says of Miss Williams, she's a relation of the Colonel's, my dear, a very near relation. We will not say how near for fear of shocking the young ladies. Then lowering her, <laughs> then lowering her voice a little, she said to Eleanor, she is his natural daughter. Eleanor's 19. So it, it, I, I think this either reflects on Eleanor's extreme maturity or else just suggests that all the other young ladies in the party are Marianne's age and younger. It's, it's also quite funny that Mrs Jennings, although she initially fixes on Miss Williams for the reason of the Colonel's departure, she then later has this long, oh, oh it, it could be this, it could be that, it could be this, but no, it could actually be that, or really it's this. And, and poor which, Eleanor has to sit through it all. Which also, though, gives us an awful lot of background on Colonel Brandon. Yes, yes, it does. So did you have a favourite sentence? I don't know if exactly a favourite sentence. I had a bit of time thinking. We don't have enough comedy in this section to have much of what we want. That was what I thought too. It would have been lovely to use that piece from Mrs Jennings about all the reasons why Colonel Brandon (laughs) could have But unfortunately it's a lot of sentences. But I found what I think is quite a pertinent sentence relating when we're talking about propriety. Most grateful did Eleanor feel to Lady Middleton for observing at this moment that it rained very hard, which is comes, I think... It, that, that, that's in the point where Sir John and to, Mrs Jennings are teasing her about the man whose name begins with an F. Yes. Though she believed the interruption to proceed less from any attention to her than from her ladyship's great dislike of all such an elegant subject of raillery as delighted her husband and mother. The point with that sentence is... There's Lady Middleton sticking up for propriety, sticking up for doing things for people. It turns out to be the right thing to do for Eleanor, but Jane Austen won't give her any credit for it. Whereas in the next sentence after that, Colonel Brandon, because he is always sensitive to the feelings of others, he joins in and he and Lady Middleton have this extensive discussion about the rain. (laughs) Yes. Whereas Marianne, who's leapt in with both feet trying to shut Margaret up has just caused Eleanor more distress. Yes, yeah. Okay, and what about yours? Well, like you, I had difficulty finding a really fun sentence because there's not a great deal of comedy in these sections. Or an elegant one. I mean, the other things we look for have very elegant sentences. Mm. The one I chose in the end was when Marianne and Eleanor are talking about the visit to Allenham and Marianne has just described the upstairs room that is so delightful. And then it says, could Eleanor have listened to her without interruption from the others, she would have described every room in the house with equal delight. Which is a nice little elegant Jane Austen sentence, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And in the sense we've talked about its significance. Yeah. The character we're talking about today is Colonel Brandon. Well, of course, Colonel Brandon is, in the end, I guess you'd have to say one of the two heroes of the book in that he marries one of the heroines at the end. My feeling is that is one of the disasters of the book, that Jane Austen hands Marianne over to Colonel Brandon. But, you know, that will come out anyway as Mm. we're going on. I think the biggest problem is not so much Colonel Brandon's age, because after all, Jane Austen is quite happy to hand Emma over to Mr Knightley, and there's a big age gap there as well. I think the problem is just how he's presented in this book. There's good stuff about him that we know. We know that he's got a very kind heart. Yeah, we talked already about him talking earnestly about the weather with Lady Middleton to distract the conversation from Eleanor. The only reason he found Eliza when he came back to England, he'd been looking for her, he couldn't find her anywhere. But then it says... Regard for a former servant of my own who had since fallen into misfortune carried me to visit him in a sponging house where he was confined for debt. So again, he's the sort of person who will go and follow up a former servant who's in difficulties and gets his reward by finding Eliza at the same place. And then, of course, there's the thing of giving the living to Edward, which John Dashwood just cannot comprehend why anyone would do that. No, no, no connection at all. Nothing to be gained, yes. Then... As the book unfolds and as we learn his backstory, he's got possibly the most romantic backstory of anyone in all Jane Austen because he, in his youth, 
he had this tragic love affair where they tried to elope and they got caught and he had to go away and his love had to marry his brother and all that's terribly tragic. And then he fights a duel, which nobody else in Jane Austen does. It's also, I think, interesting to note that Amanda Grange has written a series of Jane Austen books about diaries by all of the heroes. She wrote Mr. Darcy's diary and Mr. Knightley's diary and so forth. For Sense and Sensibility, she chose to write Colonel Brandon's diary and she never bothered to write Edward Ferrars's diary. (laughs) So he's got this amazing backstory and he's a nice person and He's older than Marianne, but at 35, he's not exactly over the hill. I don't think that makes him much older than, as I said, than Mr Knightley. But he's just presented in such a boring way. Yeah. I've always seen that as a kind of elaborate literary joke, and in some ways I think it backfires. That I've always thought it must be deliberate that he is set up as this complete romantic hero, and yet the joke is that everyone thinks he's boring. Oh, well, see, Except Eleanor. Yeah, now that's another thing I, I didn't say. And, and we also know that of all the people they have in their company in the area, he's the only one Eleanor finds interesting to talk to. From what Eleanor says, we know he can talk interestingly about his time in the Indies, but we don't see any of it. And I think that's the biggest problem. We don't see any of this stuff that makes him good. It's all secondhand or background except for the evidence of him being kind-hearted. I think you're meant to like him I think you're not meant to find him boring at the start I think that was Jane Austen's inexperience I think you're meant to find him not romantic at the start because that comes out in the backstory but I think you are meant to share Eleanor's view that he's he's the best person in the neighborhood yes so there's actually a quote by Marvin Mudrick in his book Jane Austen irony is defense and discovery where he's talked about Edward Ferris as being dull and then he goes on to say if Edward Ferrars is dull, Colonel Brandon is a vacuum. And it's true. We He's got all this amazing stuff, but none of it properly comes through. It's all told or it's secondhand. And one of the points made in talking of Jane Austen is that there's only one occasion in Sense and Sensibility where Colonel Brandon smiles, where it says, he said with a faint smile. And because nowadays we can do a word search on the book, I did do a word search, and it's true that, there's that place where he smiles faintly, and then there's one other place where he tries to smile, and that's it. He never smiles. And so they say in Talking of Jane Austen, never once do we hear him laugh. And you will perceive it is only a faint smile, but even then it breaks the settled gloom. <laughs> and on top of that, and I read this somewhere else and I've been keeping an eye out for it in the book, in the entirety of the novel, he never once talks to Marianne. Never. Oh, yeah. Well, this is what I've been told, and certainly the point we're up to so far, he has not said anything to Marianne. In fact, when he's about to leave to go back to London, it says to Marianne, he merely bowed and said nothing. So not only, <laughs> so not only are we not having any report, reported speech in this instance, we're being reported as not speaking. Yeah. So I think that's that's the problem, and I don't think that's intentional to undercut him. I think that is just the immature Jane Austen is not presenting him as well as she could because she does present Knightley as an engaging person. Oh, yes, yes. It could well be that the immature Jane Austen in her later novels, a character like Brandon, could be presented in exactly the same way early in the novel that he would then be slowly revealed and built up over time into into an engaging and human character and that simply doesn't happen. Well, I mean, perhaps she thinks it does because, after all, she gives you all this information on the romantic hero. You know, when he tells his life story, it's quite interesting. Which is, of course much later in the book so we've he's but he has already been set up as we know he's kind-hearted we're told that he talks interestingly to Eleanor but we don't see any of it we're also told that he has complained of rheumatism and spoken of flannel waistcoats to Marianne which (laughs) seriously not not a good look well was it to Marianne or did she hear him telling Mrs Jennings she says he spoke of flannel waistcoats I just wanted to pick up a possible reference in flannel waistcoats that Marianne might have not picked up on and if I'm honest Jane Austen may not have intended but of course those who served in the Indies often come back with tropical diseases Uh like malaria which which mean that they frequently end up with fits of shivering and other things that might cause them to need a flannel waistcoat so it could be something that is actually romantic (laughs) but is presented as boring yes 
But then, of course, right at the very end of the book, Jane Austen is actually still poking fun at the flannel waistcoat because when she talks about how Marianne married someone who two years before she had considered too old to be married and who still sought the constitutional safeguard of a flannel waistcoat. Yes. I think you've covered just about all the things I feel about Colonel Brandon. But there's this one thing at the end which I feel makes it a disastrous for him to marry Marianne. He is sort of pseudo-father to Miss Williams. Marianne is being brought in as sort of pseudo-mother to Miss Williams. They may not have to see much of her, but she's going to be central to his life and she's going to be trouble. But on top of that, he's also looking after her child, who is Willoughby's child, which means that Marianne will be being sort of step-grandmother to Willoughby's child, which is a pretty extreme thing. There's Marianne. She doesn't have to worry just about flannel waistcoats. She's got to worry about this whole group of people. and He may try to do a, a Harriet Smith to her. Well, and that, put... That's what Mrs Jennings thinks he should do. Through this little love child, but she may be prenticed out. No, but he's obviously not prenticed her out. Mm. And now she's got to be put into some situation where she preserves character and is bringing up this child. So they've probably got to have all sorts of semi-lies about a dead father or something like that. And everyone will still be thinking Colonel Brandon's her real father. But it's the fact of Marianne having to, in effect, bring up Willoughby's child Mm. that I think is extreme. I hadn't actually thought of that. I only thought of it recently. I think that is actually fairly horrible. I don't think Colonel Brandon will be fully standing as father and therefore Marianne's stepmother. I do think she will certainly be required to have a closer relationship than simply apprenticing the child out. I think there will be a relationship. I think maybe they'll live at least some of the time on Colonel Brandon's property, but maybe they'll uh, try uh, and keep some distance. I think they may try and send them somewhere different. Well, I if mean, they send the... them to another part of the country, then they can basically make up whatever story they want, can't yes. they? Isn't that what was often done? Well, it could have been done. They could go and live sort of somewhere... Um, what's the name of the town in Emma? They could go and live there, just as Harriet Smith did. Yeah. And Harriet Smith marries into that yeah. society, and they could hope it. But I think Colonel Brandon is too committed to them because yeah. he's committed to the first one mm. in that dynasty. So I don't think even he'd be terribly happy with her marrying a farmer. You were talking about how Mrs Jennings' meandering theories about why he left gives us a lot of backstory about Colonel Brandon. One of the pieces of backstory we get out of that is the fact that the estate at Delaford was never reckoned at more than 2000 a year. Yeah. And, of course, a bit later when Marianne and Eleanor have that conversation about a competency versus wealth, yes. Marianne's competency is 1800 to 2000 yes. So in marrying Colonel Brandon, she gets her competency. Yes. <laughs> so so that, that matches up. He's, he's financially what she wanted. Yes. So as I said, the reason Michael's joined us today is to talk about the army in Jane Austen's day. We did this a bit with Pride and Prejudice, but his focus there was on the militia and also on the regular army and the Napoleonic Wars. But this time he's going to talk a bit more about the army in the East Indies. The first thing I want to say is that Britain, in fact, had two armies in India and the East Indies during this period. I suppose I should also say that whilst amongst navigators uh, there was a clear distinction between the East Indies and India, from what I can see amongst the general population, the two terms were often used quite interchangeably. Which basically means we actually have no idea precisely where Colonel Brandon was. No, (laughs) exactly. There's no evidence in the book to state whether he was in India, yeah. the subcontinent, or... or... Or the Malaysian Peninsula, or or lands between, like Burma. Well, or one of the, the small number of Dutch colonies that the British were taking over during this period. But at this period, the British are much less powerful in the East Indies, in the Spice Islands, as it were, than, yes. than they were to become. And it's far more likely that he would have served in India, perhaps with some detachment on an expedition to the East Indies. Anyway, (laughs) let me go back to saying 
Britain had two armies in India and the East Indies during this period. As you may be aware, Britain did not in fact rule its Eastern ter territories directly, but through the Honourable East India Company, proving that all powerful multinationals are not a 21st century innovation. The East India Company had a larger revenue than the British government, ruled more people than the British government, and it also had its own army, which was significantly larger than the British regular army. Almost all the troops in the East India Company army were Indian, but officers were largely British, very often Scots or Irish Protestants, although some were in fact Anglo-Indian. Although there were many opportunities to gain wealth in the East India Company, it was much less prestigious than the already not terribly prestigious regular army. And I can say quite definitively that Colonel Brander did not serve with the East India Company, so I'm not going to talk any more about them. <laughs> Again, no doubt indicative of the enormous political power of the Honourable East India Company, units of the British regular army regularly were posted to India and to the East Indies. Service in these battalions, however, was very unpopular, particularly among the upper echelons of British society, because of their extremely high mortality rates. These deaths were overwhelmingly from disease rather than combat, although it should be said that Eastern regiments, battalions stationed in the East, saw significantly more combat than most others. So for this reason, the most prestigious army units, such as the Guards, were never sent to the East, and cavalry regiments, where officers were also often the younger sons of the peerage, were very seldom sent on Eastern service during this period. Although uh, it was still higher prestige than the New South Wales Corps? Anything <laughs> was, was more prestigious than the New South Wales Corps, even the West Indies Corps, where the death rate from disease was at over 50%. So units sent there were almost exclusively uh, battalions from line infantry regiments, uh, the archetypal redcoats. So that's something else that the 1995 film adaptation got wrong as they have at the end have Colonel Brandon in a dragoon uniform. And what what did dragoons do? Dragoons were light cavalry. Yeah. I now that. British light dragoons very occasionally served in India so there was a battalion of British light dragoons at Assay for example during the Maratha war. Colonel Brandon's background is simply not posh enough. He simply could not have afforded a commission in a cavalry regiment. So what you're saying is, as a younger son of... Of a, a somewhat impoverished estate anyway. Yes. So it is very clear to me from reading the novel that Colonel Brandon was a British regular army officer serving in an eastern battalion, because in describing his early life, he talks about being with his regiment in Britain, before arranging his exchange to a unit in the East Indies. The expression arranging his exchange is a very significant one for telling us about his army career, so I thought I'd talk a little bit about what exchange is. So exchange is one aspect of the purchase system I talked about last time. Purchase was the officially sanctioned system by which one could pay for a commission and subsequently promotion in the British regular army. Essentially, one purchased a commission and then one owned it. As I talked about before, there were official rates for what a commission was worth, but in reality it worked out somewhat differently than this. If you wanted a commission in a fashionable regiment, you paid three or four times the official going rate. If you wanted to purchase a commission in a line battalion on home service, then you would pay probably a little bit of a premium on the standard rate. However, if you were willing to exchange into a battalion either on or about to go on to Eastern service as Brandon was, 
you're actually in quite an advantageous position, financially speaking, because uh, many officers would have been eager to avoid the very real possibility of dying a truly horrible death thousands of miles from home. I therefore think it's pretty likely that Brandon would actually have benefited financially from the exchange, that far from having to pay to exchange into a battalion on Eastern service that the person he exchanged with would have had to pay him. Would it have been possible, perhaps, for him to move up a rank? Could he have... I was about to get to that. Not directly. You can only exchange at the same rank. Yes. However, I think it's more than possible that having been paid to exchange at the same rank, say, for example, he was a captain, yes. he's likely to either have been a lieutenant or a captain yes. at this point in his career. But if we assume that he's been fortunate and is a captain, he could have then used the money he, he was paid from the exchange to then by promotion to the rank of major within that battalion. And that would mean that he's only one step away from the rank that we see him in the novels, which is Lieutenant Colonel. So if we assume that while he's out there, that the Lieutenant Colonel of his battalion pops his clogs, then that would explain how Brandon could be a Lieutenant Colonel, who, by the way, are always referred to simply as Colonel in everyday yeah. speech in the novel. So is 35 young, normal, old? It's normal for an Eastern battalion. It's young for a home service battalion without wealth or connections. But as I mentioned in my previous appearance, uh, <laughs> Arthur Wellesley, who went on to be the Duke of Wellington, was a Lieutenant Colonel at 25. Having having purchased his way up the ranks. Unfortunately, Wellington has terrible consequences for the British Army because he's the good example that comes out of a bad system. Yes. That yes. through corruption and political influence, he's full general at a young age and is thus able to be this brilliant military commander in India and then in the Peninsula Campaign and at Waterloo that a fairer system would never have allowed him to be. So I think it's important that I point out that service in India and the East Indies was very different during this Regency Napoleonic period than it would become a generation later at the height of the Raj. Britain was by no means yet the absolute ruler of the subcontinent, with the East India Company's influence being largely confined to the southern coastal regions, and they were very frequently at war with other powerful Indian states like the Marathas, for example, against whom Wellington established his military reputation. For this reason, it was not considered a safe posting for British officers to bring their wives and families to. And perhaps for this reason, officers who had served in the East had a rather loose reputation amongst the gentry at home. And I think we can see some reflections of this in the novel. Some officers, for example, went native, adopting native dress and habits, which seems thoroughly sensible to me, but would have been seen as quite shameful, certainly would have been seen as quite shameful at the height of the Raj, but was part of, of the kind of Byronic romantic movement of the time. Unsurprisingly, many officers had relationships with native women. Unlike later, marriages were not unknown between British officers and Indian women. So Colonel Skinner, the founder of the famous Skinner's Horse, which is still part of the Indian Army, had a British father and an Indian mother. But most of these relationships were irregular and no doubt very exploitive. Therefore, officers who had served in the East were seen as having doubtful reputations, and I think this is interesting. It may explain, for example, why some characters in the novel are all too willing to believe that Miss Williams is Brandon's natural daughter. But other than that, he's presented as highly respectable. Yes, yes. Well, within the small Devonshire circle, he certainly is. The other thing officers in India were notorious for was duelling. 
So it's interesting that Brandon is involved in Jane Austen's only duel. section today I was going to talk a bit about how the adaptations in particular treats the visit to Allenham and Willoughby's departure. In the book there's about a week between Brandon leaving for London and then Willoughby leaving for London but the adaptations often compress that time frame a bit. In the 1971 version with Joanna David and Kieran Madden Willoughby literally leaves on the same day as the picnic to really compress it down. So obviously whoever it was that told Brandon that young Eliza had been found also continued on and told Mrs Smith about it at the same time. (laughs) In the 1981 version with Irene Richard and Tracy Childs, it's quite interesting that you have the visit to Allenham, but literally while they are at Allenham, the aunt sends for Willoughby, doesn't see Marianne, but he then immediately takes Marianne straight home and heads off to London himself. Interestingly, the 1995 version, the Emma Thompson and Kate Winslet one, there's no visit to Allenham at all. You have Colonel Brandon dramatically departing at a gallop on his horse, not even saying that he's then going to change and go post. As far as you can tell, he's going to gallop all the way to London. So from there, you just have them sort of having a picnic outside Barton Cottage And there is a really strong implication that Willoughby is planning to propose the next day because he asked Marianne if he could make an appointment to speak to her privately. And then everyone else is out. They think he's there proposing. They come back and that's when he leaves. Yeah. And the 2008 version with Hattie Morahan and Charity Wakefield, it goes to the complete other extreme. Not only does it not leave out Allenham, you have scenes of Willoughby and Marianne in Allenham and you have him kissing her in Allenham. However, like the 1995 version after that, again, there's a strong implication he's planning to propose because he actually says, may I call on you tomorrow and then may I speak with you, Mrs Dashwood, afterwards. And yeah, the only interpretation of that is he is planning to propose and that's certainly what all the ladies in the household think. But again, they've gone out walking, they come back and he leaves and it's all you tears could, and heartache. You could almost read what's actually in the book like that because he's told that... He hasn't done it as publicly. They make an arrangement for him to visit at four o'clock. But he knows that, that Mrs Dashwood and the others are going to be calling on Lady Middleton. Yeah just before that. So he has made an arrangement with Marianne to see her privately, but it's much more explicit in these two film versions. Yes. Much, much more explicit. (laughs) What struck me listening to the commentary on that most recent one was that they were very determined to have no ambiguity and no subtlety whatsoever since they talked about how by showing the visit and having them kiss, one of them actually said... In kissing her, this shows that he'd actually fallen in love with her. And we can tell he's in love with her because he doesn't sleep with her. (laughs) Would she? She'd scarcely have been available. Another thing I wanted to talk about briefly, only because it particularly annoyed me. It has annoyed me a bit in the 2008 version with Charity Wakefield as Marianne, but particularly in this segment is Marianne's hair. It feels to me very, very non-period. Eleanor always has her hair up, but Marianne sometimes and frequently in the segment I was watching for today's episode has her hair down but just with a scarf around it, which just looks to me very wrong. And again, in the commentary, they talked about having lots of different hairstyles for Marianne to fit with her personality, which I can certainly see it fits with her personality to have lots of different hairstyles, Mm. but... It felt to me a very non-period hairstyle, and I'm sure they could have found lots more period hairstyles that were still a little bit... Eleanor's hair is very tightly constrained. I'm sure they could have found more free-flowing hairstyles for Marianne that was not hair halfway down her back, tied up with a scarf. I think she has a very period hairstyle, except the period is 1973. (laughs) Yes, there's that. Another... Strong contrast that again struck me in these segments between the 1995 version and the 2008 version. Again, these are obviously the two bigger budget versions, the 1971 and 1981, so they can afford scenery. (laughs) (laughs) But the 1995 version, Barton Cottage is on an estuary. So you have mud and you have reeds and it's actually, it is very picturesque. 
The 2008 version, on the other hand, in another example of being much less subtle, it's by the seaside, it's a pebble beach, but there's these dramatic rocks, and you have some shots of waves crashing against the rocks and that sort of oh, thing. Well, so Demonstrating passion. Yes. yes, demonstrating passion. Demonstrating less subtlety. Yes. <laughs> they did comment in the commentary on the 1995 version because director was Ang Lee, the Taiwanese director, they commented on the importance he put on landscape. It's not just indoor focused on the people. He was very, very particular about having the right sort of landscape and the right sort of sheep with very woolly hair that if they fell over, they couldn't stand up on their own. (laughs) I think actually, in a way, there is more landscape in Sense and Sensibility than, well, more dramatic landscape. The others have sort of nice village landscape yeah, and pastoral landscape. Yeah. I know there's a bit of landscape around Pemberley. But it's but, very cultured landscape. Yeah. I don't know if... Well, it looks wild because it's designed to look... <laughs> well, no, I think the thing with the Pemberley landscape isn't that it was designed... The house was designed to take advantage yeah. of the wild landscape at Pemberley. I mean, mm. I think that's the picture we got. Whoever yeah. built the house was looking at landscape. Mm. But the landscape just seems to be there, near Barton Cottage. The other aspect of the 2008 that you didn't mention, which drove me to distraction about the visit to Allenham, was, yet again, it's ridiculously too grand. It's a stately home. It's a home for a duke. Or at least an earl, yes. (laughs) Yes. Quite why the adaptations always make the houses ridiculously too grand quite escapes me. Possibly because they've all been looked after so nicely by the National Trust. (laughs) Whereas if you're looking for the smaller ones, they're still, you know, being used to schools or research institutes (laughs) or Or private homes. Mm. So I thought I'd just finish up by looking at how Colonel Brandon is presented in some of the adaptations and also some of the modernisations. Not talking so much about the earlier 1970s and 1980s productions, but specifically the 1995 and the 2008. Both of those, I think, have tried, particularly by casting, to overcome some of what we were talking about, the negative portrayal of Colonel Brandon in the book or the vacuum-like portrayal of Colonel Brandon. So in 1995, they cast Alan Rickman in the part. I looked it up. Alan Rickman was 49 years old at the time. And Kate Winslet was 20 at the time. So she was only a little bit too old. He was a fair bit too old. On the other hand, Alan Rickman was an incredibly charismatic actor. He's also an actor that I think, depending on your age, you have very different impressions of. Because my first memory of seeing him in something was as Hans Gruber in Die Hard, which of course is comedy action and he's quite a nasty person. But then not long before this production, he had a romantic lead part in Truly Madly Deeply. He played a ghost, but it was a romantic part. Then this was, of course, a big romantic role. And like I said, he brought this charisma to it. He has a beautiful voice. He has beautiful facial expressions. So he really, really got you into Brandon's emotional journey right from the start. And they give him a really beautiful horse. Oh, the horses in that production are just awesome. But still, the problem is, would Marianne quite despise him as much? Or does she not in them? As in the book, what she despises is this concept that people are linking her with him. He does look significantly older than her. Willoughby is ridiculously good looking, but I think he has to be better looking than Alan Rickman and Hugh Grant. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, which, which, well, particularly which is quite with a Hugh Grant is a, is a bit hard, isn't well, it? Well, actually, I think they're all very good looking in very different ways. And very good looking, point? very different kinds of charisma. Since... Sense and Sensibility, other generations have a very different perception of him because, of course, for many people today, Alan Rickman was Snape out of the Harry Potter movies. But then in 2003, in Love Actually, he was Emma Thompson's husband. (laughs) While Hugh Grant, also in Love Actually, was the Prime Minister of Britain. So, yeah. In the 2008 version, they've gone for David Morrissey, who Michael reminded me I have seen before in an episode of Doctor Who, but not in anything else. But when I looked him up on Wikipedia, it says that throughout the 1990s, he often portrayed policemen and soldiers. (laughs) So he has the right kind of background to play Colonel Brandon. He isn't as overtly romantic as Alan Rickman. He doesn't have Alan Rickman's mellifluous voice, but he still comes across as a very solid and reliable and trustworthy presence on screen which again I think builds up the character in a way you don't necessarily get in the book 
And so his romantic past makes sense, does it? I think when Alan Rickman first arrives, you look at him and you, you could easily think, this man has a romantic past. When David Morrissey is there, I don't think you look at him and think, this man has a romantic past. But you do look at him and you think, this is an intelligent, well-informed, reliable, potentially interesting person. Yes. Mm. Which I think is probably a bit more what Brandon in the book is, but yes. made a bit more flesh yes. and blood than he is in the book in these early stages. And just looking quickly at some of the modernizations to what they do with Brandon, in the Joanna Trollope book, Delaford is an addiction clinic, so they've built up on Brandon's social mm. conscience philanthropy. and his philanthropy. In the not very good at all movie Material Girls, he's Henry Baines, who is a lawyer who does a lot of pro bono work for the poor. Oh, right. <laughs> so again, very philanthropic. In the web series Eleanor and Marianne Take Barton, it's actually kind of dodgy. Because this one was all done by student performers and quite a low budget, they couldn't get the same level of age difference and everyone's living in university flats and Brandon is a little older than the rest of them in that he's studying for a PhD but he's a tutor and Marianne is one of his students. So it's a really, well, academic ethics are a bit questionable yeah. there. Charlotte Palmer is turned into much more of a character and she's actually Brandon's sister and she's always trying to get Marianne and Brandon together for reasons not entirely clear, particularly given the academic ethics of it all. So, <laughs> yeah. so that was what I wanted to say about the pop culture versions this week. I'm still catching up on some of the other modernizations. I hope that by next time I will have watched at least one more of them, either from Prada to Nada or maybe if I've got time, the Bollywood version, which I believe is closer than some of the other modernization films. Oh, good. listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, me, Michael, and me, Ellen. In our next episode, we'll be looking at chapters 16 to 20 of Sense and Sensibility. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website, readingjaneausten.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.